Well, did we have anything? Tucker. <laughs> wow. My cat jumped. <laughs> my cat jumped exactly oh on the buttons. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome to an American workplace. Another episode of office podcast. <laughs> I'm like, Oh man, I didn't prep for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I had it open to that page on my soundboard because I was going to push one of those buttons as a joke at some point. Oh. <laughs> Um, but my cat did you it for can. me, so there it is. There we go. <laughs> Just sneak it in somewhere else. Yeah. I am hoping that I have still got this. <laughs> I'm sure you do. And you know what? I'm sort of out of it too. I've only recorded two podcasts of my own in the last like three months. So cool. We're, we're good. We'll figure it out. It'll come yeah. back. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinescope. This is episode 92, and I'm talking with uh, a longtime friend and a longtime podcasting partner, Katie White. Katie, how are you doing? That's not my name, Chad. Oh, no. <laughs> See, this is this is old habits. Katie Roden. Surprise. I know. I'm. St- it's still weird. I'll occasionally still get asked, like, what's your name? And Katie, mm, uh, and I look dumb. <laughs> yes, I'll respond to anything. Well, I look dumb because I didn't even consider it. I'm just not used to it. The window of us podcasting since you've been married has been so small since we technically finished our other podcast before you got married and we like only recorded a couple before. of like bonus things since. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we, we really finished all that up late summer, early fall of 2019. Um, and then, man, 2020 came in real strong. So uh, just a we've little been, bit. <laughs> we've, it's, it's been a minute since we've even chatted, but uh, it's good to be back behind the microphone, if you will. And I am a little scared, but I'm yeah. excited to be talking about Inside Out today. Well, I'm glad you found the microphone since you said you, you had it packed away. <laughs> we did have to look pretty hard for it, but we found it. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> well, we already hinted towards it. Do you just want to, rem- since you've only been on this show once and it's been a while, do you want to remind people out there who you are, where they might know you from and what you do? Yeah. So, uh, Katie Roden, nay <laughs> White, I did a, how long did we record? Uh, an American Workplace with Chad, which was our retrospective uh, rewatch of the American version of The Office, which, when did we even start that? It was 20... summer of 2017, and 17. we wrapped yep. up fall 2019, so it was just over two years. Yeah, two-year-long project. It was a lot of fun. Really had never podcasted before. Actually, you know what? I think my first podcast was the last time I was on this podcast, which mm-hmm. is when we did Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. right around that same time, so summer of 2017, so go check that one out. But yeah, uh, let's see. New Yorker, kind of, lived here for several years now. Um, that's me. Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and just jump into it. <laughs> we are talking about a Pixar movie, and you, you picked this out off of my list of things I'd like to talk about eventually. But it's been a long time since I watched this movie, and now that I have felt the feelings with the feelings, <laughs> I'm ready to talk <laughs> about the feelings. <laughs> this movie released in June, uh, June 19th of 2015, was directed by Pete Docter, who also directed Monsters, Inc., and up for Pixar and is directing the upcoming Soul for Pixar. And he's also the person in charge of Pixar at the moment as well. 
It was written by Doctor as well as by Meg Lafave and Josh Cooley, who directed Toy Story 4, by the way. And the story is by Doctor and by Ronnie Del Carmen, who served as co-director. The music is by Michael Giacchino. I'm only going to skim over his composition credits because the list I've included here is actually really long, and I don't need to read all of these. A few of the Mission Impossible movies, Ratatouille, Star Trek, Up, John Carter, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Spider-Man, Far From Home, and Homecoming. I put those in the wrong order, but that's okay. The Incredibles, lots of great movies, lots of great scores, and he does a great job with the music here, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, The movie stars... Uh, this is funny because it's like we're <laughs> an office reunion slash Parks and Rec. It's right up our alley, in other words. It stars Amy Poehler, Phyllis Smith, Richard Kind, Louis Black, Bill Hader, Mindy Kaling, Caitlin Diaz, Kyle McLaughlin, and Diane Lane. Yeah, I didn't even think about that when, when we were uh, deciding movies um, as soon as Amy Poehler, who has the first line as Joy, started talking. And I was like, oh, I remember the cast now. This is going to be fun. It really was sort of a blast from the past, especially considering how prominently Phyllis is featured. And, you know, what's funny is that she wasn't an actress necessarily before The Office. She was sort of like, I think she was working in the casting department or something or the costume department. And then they were like, do you want to play this role? Because she read it on table reading or something. And so the, The Office catapulted her into the acting career. And now here she is in a movie that we're talking about completely unintentionally. But then you've got Mindy Kaling as well. And there's even a Rashida Jones mini appearance in the end credits, I think. So funny connections all over the place. To get started, I was wondering what your first experience, not only with this movie is, but maybe with Pixar in general. Oh, um, okay. I'll start with this movie. I don't quite remember. I, I think I saw it first in theaters and I'm going to have a little preface here by saying I like Pixar a lot. I might even love Pixar, but Disney Pixar is not the first thing I reach for when I'm looking for a movie often. So going to see this in theaters was very much like, oh, I could just wait and see this at home. I don't think I need to be at the, you know, I don't think I need to see this in theaters. Boy, was I wrong. It was really, I I don't remember who I was with or what I was doing in my life, but I remember that I really enjoyed this movie. And Pixar in general, I think the first movie I remember as Pixar was Up. I think before that, I, I can't say that I recognized a movie as Pixar movies, but I think Up was the huh. first one that I was like, oh, that's, that's a Pixar movie. Okay. So my Pixar experience, I think I've talked a little bit about this in the past since we've talked about Up. I mean, like everybody else our age, I, I grew up watching Pixar movies, uh, Toy Story, Bugs Life, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, all those. But the first one I remember experiencing in the theater was WALL-E, I think. That was 2008. And I'm pretty sure up to that point, I just sort of seen it on VHS or on DVD at home. So Wally was 08 and then you had up in 09 and then you had Toy Story 3 in 2010. And so that like those three in a row, that was a fantastic streak for the studio. But then right after that, you had Cars 2. I think I've seen it once. (laughs) And then Brave, which I think is okay. I didn't love it the first time I saw it. Um, It's grown on me since then. And then you had Monsters University which was obviously a prequel to Monsters, Inc. And I think it's a sweet film. It's not as outstanding as the best of Pixar, though. And so you had three really great Pixar films, and then you had three not as great Pixar films before this one. 
So I, I don't remember necessarily being excited for this one. I don't remember a lot of the, the marketing for this one. I don't remember what my thoughts going into it were. I didn't even remember for sure if I had seen it in the theater because I don't, I, I keep my movie ticket stubs and I didn't have a movie ticket stub for this one, but I, I did do the research <laughs> as people who listen to the office podcast know we like to do our research. I searched my Twitter feed and I did tweet about <laughs> inside out back in 2015. So I saw it in theaters and even though I haven't watched it many times over the years, I think from the beginning, like you said, I loved this movie Pixar. It was like a return to form for them in a certain respect. Not that those other movies that I mentioned were bad again, but going back to the streak of Wally up toy story three, this one was a mm. gut punch just like each of those were. And so it, it really stood out in my memory as being of the upper echelon of Pixar films. And so uh, revisiting this one was a real treat, even though it obviously makes you cry a lot <laughs> if you're, <laughs> you're watching properly. So I, I was glad to revisit it. And that's sort of my, my history leading up to this point. And just going straight into our story conversation, the joke with Pixar is that they, they tend to ask what if blank had feelings? And so with Toy Story, you have what if toys had feelings? And then with A Bug's Life, it's what if bugs have feelings? And <laughs> what if monsters? What if superheroes? What if rats with Ratatouille? Cars. <laughs> then all of a sudden we get to this one and it's what if feelings had feelings? What if emotion had feelings? And so it's a, it's a creative concept, even though it sort of tends to be a riff of the, the Pixar, I wouldn't say formula, but way of thinking. But I love that concept. And I love the way that emotions and memory are depicted here. Memories as sort of key moments in your life that are saved in these little orbs when you express certain emotions. They're tied to emotions. They come out a certain color. And I think that's really true to how we do experience memories and how we do remember things is we, we tie events in our lives to a specific emotion that we felt at that time or a specific person we were with and how that person made us feel. So I think that the, the concept behind this film is one really unique. That's something that Pete Doctor, the director, is really good at, is coming up with good concepts. And yeah, that, that's what I've got to say about that, at least. Yeah, the concept for me for this film really, really is, is what makes it what it is. And the whole construct of, well, really just the way that they describe adolescence entering into puberty, maybe not even touching. I, I can't really decide. I, I watched this movie a couple days ago with my husband and we were discussing, he thought the whole movie was about puberty. I thought the whole thing was about mental health and mental illness. That's always sort of been my, my take on it is that Riley was going through something. She lost happiness and sadness. She lost joy and sadness. And what is that? And so I don't know, this whole concept for Pixar to take something as heavy as that and make it into a children's film, not a children's film, a family film, is so, it's such a big project that they handled really, really well. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Kubo and the Two Strings a couple episodes ago, which isn't a Pixar film, but it's another, I like the phrase you used, family film, not kids film, family film, something that can be experienced by any age and have something to take away from it. I love the concept of the core memories, like the, the specific things from your past that make you you, that give you personality, that give you interests and traits that stick with you throughout a chunk of your life, even if it's not your entire life. You, you, they, they have a scene where there's the imagination projections where you see Riley jumping around on furniture and playing the floor as lava. And you see she, the way she sees things is actually lava. 
And, you know, looking at the emotions themselves, all of the priorities of their emotions are to look after Riley, to act in her best interest, and to largely work together. But then what you see is there's also a level of pride and selfishness that goes with that, especially in the case of Joy. She wants to be in control and she wants to have the majority of the memories that appear on the wall throughout any given day to be her color because it means that she made her feel happy, which I think is definitely a pot. Obviously, it's a positive emotion that doesn't need to be said. But Joy would, if, if Joy had it her way, she would only have joyful, happy memories. And so I like that the, the movie explores the, the idea of what would happen if you were unable to experience joy for one reason or another, and what would take its place, how, how would your outlook on life or how would your experience in life be different because of your inability to experience that one specific emotion? That, that's a heavy concept for kids. When you're young, young kid, I mean, you, you are pretty singular in expressing one emotion or another. I've, I've got a godson who's a year and a few months old at this point, and he flips from one emotion to the next, like with a snap of a finger, because that's, that's just how he experiences life at that age. And you experience life in that way for so many years of your life. But now Riley's 11 going on 12. And I don't know if I would say it necessarily is a, a film about puberty, but I think it's definitely a film about growing and maturing over time. And especially since, yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. At the end of the movie, not to give, you know, the ending away, she gets her first mixed feeling Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie when up until then it had been joy or sadness or anger or disgust or sadness. And at the very end, we get bittersweet. We get joy and sadness in one thing, which is the sign. It is a sign of maturity and of, I mean, kids, I don't think kids feel bittersweet. It's just not a thing. It's, it's not. It's a pretty nuanced thing, and, and you need some life experience before you feel bittersweet, and, and she does at the end. And the whole concept of, I mean, sadness is obviously sad, and it has a bad connotation, but it's not bad that sadness is in your life. It's a part of life, and I think Riley understands that at the end of the movie, that sadness touches a lot of your life, but it's not, it's just colored on your life. It, it doesn't need to be your whole life. Um, it's okay to be sad that things change. It's okay to be sad that you move away from your friends and your hockey team and your home, but it makes room for other things. And I think that's, that's what she comes to at the end of the movie. Speaking of just talking about the animation and the, the colors of the film, this and maybe Coco, I think are Pixar's most colorful and just like creatively animated movies. We've talked concepts a whole bunch, but just like looking at the colors, the way things pop off the screen, the the way joy is literally a beacon of light the entire film and seeing, I don't know, there's something about the texture of the emotions that's really cool. They're, it's almost like they're fuzzy or stuffed animals in a certain respect. And then the way that we explore the inside of Riley, where you have these shelves and shelves and shelves of memories. You have the dump where the memories that, are, that fade away go. You have different lands for different parts of your personality that are activated depending on what you're doing at that time of day. Really, really cool. Really, really creative concepts. And I just love that we're, we're exploring something that really nothing has ever explored in this way before. Even if similar themes have been explored, they've never been explored in this way. And that, that's 
again, a strength of Pixar. Yeah, I like that the Dream Factory is like a production stage. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's Hollywood. A, it's, it's, it's a Hollywood set. And then there's the actual train of thought. And, you know, it's just, it's really neat how they, I, I could spend the whole episode talking about the concept of this film because they really dived into just what goes on in your head and let's visualize that and conceptualize that in a way that is, that makes sense for kids and that adults can understand and have fun with kind of these these little jokes like the train of thought that kids see as a train that takes you back to HQ but the adults kind of laugh or when Bing Bong is pointing out sights from the train and he says oh here's this and there's deja vu and here's this and there's deja vu and yeah. here's this and there's deja vu that's a, that's a funny joke that kids won't get but adults can get plenty of laughter from right uh, let's go ahead and talk about characters so the quote main character of the movie is joy and safe to say, she's an optimist. <laughs> she, she only sees the positives in things. So it's not like an optimist as you might describe a person who, who tends to see the positive in things. This is a, a character who only sees the positives in things at the beginning of the film. And there's a bright side to this because happiness is a, a positive emotion and Joy wants Riley to experience positive emotion as much as possible. But it's also to a fault because we see how, in a way, manipulative joy can be especially towards sadness there's the first day full day where they're in san francisco she's trying to make it the best she can possibly make it and she just draws a circle in the ground and says your job is to keep sadness inside of this circle and she she spins it like it's a positive thing like it's a really important job and really it's because she doesn't understand that sadness does have a place in riley's life especially when she's going through a for a child traumatic experience such as moving away from your friends in familiar locations and experiencing something completely new and foreign and scary that's the biggest flaw of joy again especially towards sadness because we see in that scene that she's able to sort of use the other emotions to their potential like uh using fear to outline any potential bad scenarios that could happen on her first day of school or using disgust to find a way to stand out but still fit in. And it's just with sadness because it's like such a polar opposite of her normal state of being. She doesn't understand it. And so she doesn't understand how there's a place for that too. And in fact, when she's giving the opening narration, that's Joy speaking, she says, I'm Joy. This is fear. He keeps Riley safe. There's disgust. She keeps Riley safe from being poisoned. Anger cares deeply about fairness. And there's sadness. Sadness, uh, she's just there. <laughs> right. And it's not until the end of the film that she has a reason for sadness. It was interesting that, that she listed a reason for everyone else. Everyone else keeps Riley safe, essentially, really, except for joy and sadness. Uh, and she didn't give a reason for herself, but she also couldn't give one for sadness, too. Yeah, she's incapable of seeing anything but the bright side until there isn't one. And so once they get lost through the, the tube to the, the library of past memories or whatever it's called, and Riley begins to experience anything but happiness or sadness, Joy is exposed to her own range of fear and disgust and anger and eventually sadness. To, to have the literal personification of happiness cry <laughs> in the, the pit of forgotten memories, that is like mind bomb right <laughs> like that that's one of the the biggest tearjerker moments of the film is when joy is sitting in that pit thinking she's lost forever and crying and that's such a powerful image for a kid too to realize 
that oh my my feelings can have feelings not not literally of course but that they're they're not so singular joy isn't like pure happiness joy can be a range from zero to ten with a mix of anything else into that yeah joy is not always I'm, I'm speaking of the character and the emotion here not always jumping up and down thrilled screaming it, it can be a complex happiness as well I think that's probably the first instance of bittersweet in the whole movie is when the character Joy starts crying Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's so, it feels unnatural. It feels kind of wrong. And I think it's a great piece of imagery for for what Riley might've been feeling, which is kind of wrong and and, and unheard of before. So really, really, really neat. Again, concept here for for these emotions. And um, I also love, I mean, it's it's Disney Pixar. Of course, there's a, a child as a main character, but I think this is the first time that we've seen that I've seen in a in, in a family film a kid so complex that they really dive into emotions and that it's okay to be mad and sad and she's really trying to keep it together for her family. She's really tr- I mean her her dad has a stressful job and the moving truck got lost and her mom says I just really need you to keep smiling you're doing a great job and so Riley feels this stress and this this expectation to keep being happy but she's not happy mm-hmm. and that's okay and and so she's just really grappling with what it means to be a good daughter and to miss her friends and her home it's cool to see a quote unquote kids film take this stuff really seriously joy going on this quest with sadness is able to finally see the benefits of other emotions she sees sadness comfort bing bong joy when when bing bong is sitting there crying worried about being forgotten joy just tries to make him happy she tries to flip his emotion and it doesn't work and then sadness goes up to him and just says oh i'm sorry that this happened to you i'm sorry that you're sad man being with riley must have been great huh and she just lets him be sad for a minute helps him to reminisce through his sadness and join in him with his mourning and that makes him feel better and so that's that's joy seeing the benefit of sadness really for the first time and then when they decide that they need to wake riley up so that they can get the train of thought going again sadness's idea was to scare riley awake but that's such a quote negative emotion that joy associates being scared with a negative thing she doesn't want to do it. And so she tries it her way first. Let's wake her up with happiness, which isn't a thing that doesn't work. If you're happy in a dream, you want to stay asleep. And so she, she realizes, oh, sadness is right about this too. She has to be scared awake. And there, there are places for these emotions. Because even at the beginning of the movie, I said that Joy was using the other emotions to their potential. She's using fear to outline potential bad scenarios that might happen at school. But she's doing that to help Riley avoid being scared. She's not letting fear do his job in occasionally controlling Riley and letting her be scared. She's trying to avoid the things that might scare her, right? And so even in that moment, she sees there's a benefit to this and this and this. And Riley just needs the full human experience. And that that's what Joy comes to learn by the end of the film. She's even able to see from Sadness's perspective after she escapes from the chasm. And she's looking for, for sadness. And she sort of like role plays as her for a second. And she flops on the ground. She says, oh, I'm so sad. And I got to drag my hand. And then she's able to find sadness by stepping into her head for a moment, which she wouldn't have been able to do at the beginning of the film because she wouldn't have even been able to comprehend 
what sadness is and what can allow for you. Not to bring it back to the humans again, but the I, I noticed something on this watch that I hadn't noticed before, um, which was the parents. We get to see briefly into each of their heads, and it's really funny, and the emotions are all dressed up as the parents, basically. All the, all the dads have a mustache, all the moms have the glasses and the ponytail <laughs> or whatever. But something I hadn't noticed before, Riley's leader is Joy. Riley's mom, her leader, the person in the driver's seat, is sadness, mm-hmm. and in dad's is anger. And we don't see them as angry or sad people. There are moments, you know, the, the, the truck doesn't show up or work is annoying and we see them manage those emotions, but it, they're not outwardly angry or sad, which points to maturity. Mm-hmm. When anger is in the driver's seat for Riley, she's angry. When disgust is, she's disgusted. But the parents have a much more nuanced, you know, Sadness might be running mom's life, but she doesn't let that show for Riley. She's much better, of course, as an adult at managing her emotions and controlling what is on the outside. Versus when Riley, when sadness and joy are gone, each of the other emotions gets a turn at pretending to be joy and it comes out as sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's just kids aren't so great yet at uh, at managing those emotions and at. for lack of words, pushing those things aside to have the emotions that others need you to have. I love that you pointed that out because I noticed that this time through as well, that they each had different drivers. And that's extended, in a, again, in a funnier way in the end credits right after the credits start. You see like the bus driver is all angry. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to remember there's the dog that's just dogs of different colors being dogs. And then there's a cat with all their nonsense. But anyways. Yeah, I I like that each of the people that we see into their heads, they each have somebody different who's in charge. And the unique thing about Riley is that she's born joyful. The opening track of this movie and that opening theme is called A Bundle of Joy. And that's sort of her defining characteristic throughout the film. And that's what Joy wants to continue. And that's what she realizes by the end, that it's, it's not sustainable or healthy to be happy all the time. You've got to allow the full spectrum of human emotion and experience through. Now. We talked a lot about joy. Do you have anything to say about sadness? First, what a perfect voice for sadness. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. Phyllis Smith. Oh, so happy that she's sadness. I think she arguably has the most growth in the film. I mean, Riley obviously comes a long way and so does Joy, but I I think I like sadness's growth here the most because she she starts off a little pedantic, a little annoying. It's sadness. No one wants sadness. I mean, she's lovable as sadness, but it's also like all the other emotions seem fair. Even anger. It's okay to be angry, but no one wants to be sad. And so the whole idea of sadness being there is a little off-putting. And Joy certainly feels that way too. And by the end, she shows her own kindness in her sadness. Like what you said about Bing Bong and letting him just sort of air his, his grievances and air his his emotions and his sadness. She sat with him, let him talk about it. And sadness sort of made sense of things for him. And we hadn't gotten to see her do what she does, which is just sit and and listen, which was a really, I think, a complex take and a really beautiful one. I was wondering while watching today, do you think that what happens in this movie, maybe not the whole quest part of it, but the the idea of emotions touching other memories and changing the color 
happens in every person in this universe? Like, is it just like sort of a rite of passage? Like you reach a certain age where something happens in your life and it, it triggers the process of maturing. And that's what this is. Again, not necessarily puberty. She's still a uh, ways away from that, as we see from the ending when the new mm-hmm. console has the puberty button. But this, this was triggered by moving. Up until that point, Riley had had uh, an almost exclusively happy life and lived joyfully every single day. But then this, this happens. And I was just curious, do you think that in this universe, each person has like a triggering moment that sets off this chain reaction where your emotions do become more complex? Hmm. I had not considered that. I don't know if it would need to be a big catastrophic change, like moving across the country at the age of 11. I think it definitely happens for every character in the universe. I think, you know, mom and dad and the bus driver and whoever certainly all have those multicolor memories or even core memories that are not joy. But I don't think it needs to be a big sentinel event, but I think it probably likely is for most people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of starting to argue against myself in my head because what Joy realizes towards the end when she's down in the pit and she's holding that, that blue core memory, she realizes that it's not necessarily changed from a happy memory to a sad memory. It's just a different part of the memory. And she's able to fast forward and rewind from one to the other. And so maybe the, the process isn't the process of being able to experience multiple emotions or having multiple emotions attached to an event in your life, but realizing that you can have multiple emotions attached to something in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does. And that's true of, of life. Yeah, she accidentally discovers that, oh, if I go back to this specific moment, this is the sadness part, but the sadness led to the joy. And so those two can intermingle. She just didn't realize that the, the memory already had a sadness component to it. Joy might have been the predominant emotion, which is why it was a yellow sphere, you know, but mm-hmm. there is sadness there too. She, she just didn't see it. That's interesting. So I guess that's the change is it's, it's realizing the complexity of your emotions and not thinking of everything as such a, a singular experience. Happy or sad. Yeah. Right. Anyways, I, I was just wondering that while watching. <laughs> yeah. There's one other character to talk about. <laughs> and do you know who he is? Is it Bing Bong? <laughs> We've got Bing Bong. Like this, it is Bing Bong. This, this is the thing that people remember from this movie more than anything else. Who's your friend who loves to play? It's Bing Bong. <laughs> what do you have to say about him? <laughs> I didn't love him the first time I saw this movie, but honestly, I've grown to like him a lot as I watched more and more. I mean, I've only seen this movie a handful of times, but they've been a few years apart each time. And I think he's very sweet. I think he represents, I mean, Riley's still a child. She's 11, but I think it represents young childhood. He's her imaginary friend. That's such a sweet, innocent idea to have an imaginary friend and maybe her first real friend. And the whole concept of him wandering around her subconscious is kind of spooky and sad at the same time. (laughs) And that he ends up in the dump and sort of sacrifices himself so that Joy can make it out. Understanding that kids lose their imaginary friends and one day they'll stop thinking of them and they'll be forgotten. And he knows that and he's okay with that. I mean, he's sad, as we saw, 
sadness sat there and let him cry it out. But it's a really cool take on just letting childhood go and moving into adolescence. And I think they did that really well with that character. The character himself, I, I love how he's like a perfect rendition of what you remember or what yeah. you see happening of a, an imaginary friend. He's all about fun, about happiness. He's a scapegoat for when you make bad decisions, <laughs> like when they go through the abstract thought area. They can blame that on Bing Bong. And I mean, what kid hasn't had an imaginary friend that they've blamed a decision or a, a broken item or whatever on? So I, I love that part of it, just the concept stuff that we've been talking about. But then you have his sacrifice, which, again, that's the thing that people remember from this movie. It's the single biggest tearjerker, I think. He realizes that he's been outgrown. Him and Joy are trying to escape on his, his flying wagon. I, I, flying machine? Is, that what he, is it just flying machine? I think so. I said wagon. <laughs> yeah, either way, they're trying to escape. And it takes him a couple tries and they get close, but they can't make it. And he looks down and he realizes he's already fading. Like there's nothing that's going to happen if he get, makes it out, except he's going to continue to fade away. And so he realizes he's been outgrown and he's being forgotten. So he takes the unselfish approach, which is to sacrifice himself so that joy, some, something that she absolutely needs. She doesn't need an imaginary friend. That would be selfish for him to assume that she does, but she does need the ability to experience joy. And so he sacrifices himself so that joy can make it out. And it's just a powerful moment. I don't think that it affected me the first time as much as it, as it affected a lot of other people. Even though I said it's the single biggest tearjerker, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that <laughs> now that I've said it and I've thought about it while talking a little bit. But still, it's a powerful moment. And it's, I guess, representative of letting go of childhood and accepting that life goes on and that you get older and you mature and you let go of some things as you get older and as you do get more mature. But those things had an important part in your life at one point. And so they, they have their place. I would agree with you that this scene for me got more effectual. Um, is that a word? Yeah. more, more Effective. It, it affected. Yeah. I don't know. It, it affected me more the older I got and the more I, I watched this movie. It was definitely sad the first time, but it wasn't, it didn't mean as much to me then as it did now. Having kids in my life now who, you know, I've, I've seen go from a baby to a, a young kid, a 10 year old or whatever, that watching this sort of happen, I think it affects me a lot more now as an adult than it would have closer to their age. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I would agree with that as well. Are there any other characters? I mean, we can just sort of shout out the other emotions. They're, they're not as much there for the, the character growth, but they're funny. I mean, Bill Hader as yeah. fear is fantastic. Mindy Kaling, as discussed, is perfect. Yep. And Louis Black, I'm not as familiar with outside. In fact, I don't know if I've seen anything he's in outside of this, but I mean, he makes a really good anger. He does. And it's, it's cool seeing, I guess this is sort of a conceptual thing, not as much a character thing, but seeing the same characters in other people's heads is is really interesting that they they're all kind of shaped the same <laughs> so so you know like this is his anger this is her anger and that they're all sort of the same character in other people as they are in Riley but of course they're a little bit tailored to the person that they belong to you know Riley's anger is different than her dad's anger but they are very very similar so it's just a really neat take on the same character for other people yeah, if anything, from those three characters, you see 
how you can't let your life be led by being afraid of everything or being angry at everything. You can see how that, that can quickly lead to poor decisions and bad people skills and all those kind of things. And so it's more of a testament to how you need a mix of all of your emotions um, anyways. So right. let's talk about the music just a little bit. There's the main theme, which I'll go ahead and play right now. I love the simplicity of this theme because it's like you could plunk it out with one finger. There's nothing that's like, there's no chords that are happening in the main melody. If you wanted to, you could just like go around and play it slowly and a kid could do that too. And I think that's a testament to this is something that a kid could theoretically play. But because it's so simple, it leads to the possibilities of it being built on and becoming more complex in other ways later in the film as the emotions and Riley herself goes through a, a change. Yeah, I think the the simplicity of it, the childlike nature of it, it's very clean. There's not a whole lot of instrumentation going on really for a lot of the film, if I'm remembering correctly, except for like the big climactic scenes. It's very childlike. It's very innocent. It speaks a lot to where Riley is in her life. It, it feels very delicate in a way that Riley must feel, I think, right now, which is it almost seems fragile to me. And she's definitely in a fragile spot in her life right now. Other places where I wanted to highlight the music, when we first get introduced to sadness, there's like a low tuba theme, which is really fun. And then we get this theme, which is very string heavy. It's not as simple as the the joy theme, but this is like the everything is going good kind of theme. And it returns at the end of the film after Riley has had her moment with her parents where she has expressed her sadness, but then attached happiness to that memory of them huddled together. So everything's good again. And again, you get that simple piano. It's not the same as the joy theme, but it, it's reminiscent of it. But I think this, this theme itself has a little bit more of uh, sadness involved in it. Not necessarily that it's a sad theme, but it's not like purely happy either, which I, again, I think is the point. Yeah, it's, you might have an answer to this. I don't. Are, are there more themes for the other characters? Because if there was, that would be a really cool way to incorporate like, oh, if joy is piano and tuba is sadness <laughs> to kind of create an orchestra of emotion, if you will. But I don't have the Yeah, almost like that. Peter and the Wolf. I, I, I don't know. I'd have to listen to the score a little bit more to see if I could pick out specific emotion or specific themes or colors for the other three characters. Yeah, but that's for another watch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a couple more things. This one I caught on this time around. Obviously, you've got Bing Bong's theme, which, really, which is really fun and whimsical and happy. And this is the same music that plays in the Imagination Island as well. But then you have Bing Bong's song, which they sing to power the flying machine. Who's your friend who loves to play Bing Bong, Bing Bong? And this might break some hearts out there. This is a little bit of a longer clip. I'm going to go ahead and play it just because of the, the ending that I noticed. So this is the scene where Bing Bong makes a sacrifice. This is the music that plays as he drops off so that Joy can make it up.
right here. Joy has made it up. And listen to what happens here in the music. Bing. Bong. Chad. <laughs> yeah. Ah, that's sad. And it just continues. It's it's still going where it's just bing, bong, bing. And this is Joy looking down into the pit. And bing, bong says, take her to the moon for me. And he fades away. But... Yeah, I noticed that this time around, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That's a bummer. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have caught that. Yeah, I don't know if I'd caught it ever before either, but I, I was just sort of like browsing through pieces of the soundtrack while uh, preparing to record after watching the movie, and I found that. I don't think I even recognized it while watching the movie. I just found it while listening, and I thought, oh, he, he did that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a choice he made to kill us. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in my in my notes, I just wrote yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's about right. Yeah, I've got one more thing to play. And this is the music that plays during the moment where Riley and her parents are hugging after she has come back from running away. And you'll hear the joy theme, but then you'll hear some added strings that that add in that color of sadness that we've talked about and you you hear the emotions mixing and that's just a testament to how uh, great a composer Michael Giacchino is and how layered he can be in the storytelling in his music. I mean itself it's slower it's spaced out a little bit more so it sounds sadder now than it did at the beginning but then the strings come in here and it adds more of that that color to it. Anyways, that's it. I just wanted to point that out because it's a, a cool thing that Giacchino does there towards the end. Uh, again, changing that, that, taking that simple theme, that really easy, happy, innocent theme of childhood. And then what, what I cut off there is it goes back into that things are good again theme that I played earlier. So Giacchino is one of the best. I think this is one of his best scores. And it's a shame that I don't even think it got nominated for the Oscars this year. So that's really sad, but it's really great. It's really great. And I, I'm glad that this is a, a segment of your show because I think I told you right before we started recording that I didn't really notice the music much, which is a bummer because I was a music major right next to you at Texas Tech. <laughs> and I don't notice music that much in movies. I just don't. I get wrapped up in other stuff. And so music ends up being, I think for I think a lot of people, it probably ends up just being supplementary and sort of subconscious hinting, which it definitely was in this. But I'm really glad that you pointed that stuff out because I wouldn't have caught a lot of that, especially the bing bong, which is going to get me next time. <laughs> It'll I watch just the show movie. you. On, yeah, <laughs> I'll say that paying attention to movie music while watching the movie is like a muscle to to, to build up to flex, and to flex. Yeah. It was not something that I was always good at. In fact, I've, I've thought about like posting bonus material or something sometime, just talking about how to listen 
to movie music. Although I just recorded an episode that hasn't gone live yet, but it will be live by the time people are listening to this over Jaws. There's another podcast uh, that I listen to that's called Sideshow Sound Radio, and they're a movie music podcast hosted mm. by composers. And so they, they actually have something called Score Guides where they take movie sound tracks and go track by track by track, and they talk about how it fits into the film, the instrumentation used, and what that instrumentation accomplishes, and stuff like that. So that's a good starting place if you wanted to explore that. Excellent. That's a great idea. Our final section of discussion is impact and sort of our takeaways from the movie, how it affects us, the the things that linger with us after we watch. And I think we've already alluded to or talked about a lot of what we might have to say, but do you have anything to add on? I think I'm just really appreciative of, of the writers and the creators taking the care to make this movie as sensitive as it needed to be uh, while addressing mood and mental health and childhood. It's a, it was a big ask, I think. This, this movie needed to be very sensitive and, and very careful, and it was. It was a real pleasure to watch. I mean, it's just such a, such a fun movie while also addressing something so, so careful. I agree. I said this earlier, Pete Docter is really great at concept. He's the guy who did Monsters, Inc., and he did Up as well. And he's got the next Pixar movie to be released, which is Soul. And I have a lot of faith in that film, and I have a lot of faith in the studio as a whole, knowing that he's sort of the one guiding it in these times, now that Lasseter has stepped aside and uh, been forced aside. And Doctor is in charge. Doctor, I think, is probably the best person for the job, to be honest. I think there's maybe three or four names who I would say are like the the titans of Pixar. Pete Doctor is one of them. Brad Bird, even though he doesn't exclusively do Pixar, uh, he's a guy who did The Incredibles and Ratatouille. He's up there as well. And also Lee Unkrich, who did Toy Story 3, which I think is my favorite of that trilogy. And he also did uh, Coco which is very high in my ranking for Pixar films as well. And I think that this movie ranks probably higher in my ranking of Pixar films than I would have initially done just on memory. I'm I'm glad I rewatched it as well because it it, is, I I wouldn't give a number to it now because I haven't put that much thought into it, but I would say it's, it's in the the upper echelon for sure of Pixar's films. I just want to reemphasize the the sort of the, the overall point of this movie. The overall takeaway is that our emotions aren't singular. There are tinges of multiple emotions in every memory or part of ourselves. And the idea of collaboration, obviously between the emotions as personified in this movie, because they're a part of who we are, but just seeing it, it shouldn't be joy pulling all the strings because it's not normal or healthy for someone to feel joy 100% of the time. Through emotions like sadness, we can find comfort in others. That's what Joy realizes in that hockey memory is that because Riley was sad, it led to a happy emotion. And again, there aren't replacements for our emotions. Fear, disgust, and anger try to do Joy's job, but they can't. They're, they are in no way a replacement. So it's, a, it's about a healthy balance between all of our emotions that makes us healthy people. I think you said it. Really, really glad we chose to do this movie because it was such a great excuse to watch it again. Uh, I can't wait as long as I did last time, which was probably at least a couple of years. So this needs to be a more frequent watch. Same here. I wanted to point out one more thing that I noticed, and then we can sort of close things out. When Riley and her parents are hugging on the floor at the end of the movie, they are posed in exactly the pose of the family statue that was yes. on Family Island the whole rest oh, of the movie. Like it's exactly that, that pose. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Oh, and one little funny bonus scene that I wanted to mention that I didn't have a place to put it in. Probably my biggest laugh of the movie was when Riley um, is back into hockey at the end and she bumps into the kid who dropped his water bottle and we look <laughs> into his head and it's just all, it's like a, it's like a five alarm fire. Girl, girl, girl. And he's <laughs> yeah. just panicked. Was it was a really good laugh. Yeah, that's a really good one. If that's all we got to say, that's the end of the 92nd episode of Cinescope. Katie, it was great podcasting with you again. It was so good. I am really glad that we did this. Thanks for asking me. Hope to do it again. I'm sure we'll get you back in there and <laughs> there will always be windows open for us to podcast together in the future. So we'll make it happen. <laughs> Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Uh, please continue to go to Apple Podcasts and drop a rating and a review that helps us with exposure so that we can grow the audience and get more listeners and more audience interaction. And speaking of audience interaction, go to Twitter, go to Facebook, tell us what you think about this show, but you can also email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Katie, where can people find you nowadays? Best place is probably Twitter. You can find me at ktlady623. And you can also find our other podcast, uh, Chad's and my podcast, where we co-host our office podcast. It's called An American Workplace. Gosh, I'm trying to remember all of our tags for that. Um, Workplace pod. on twitter is that right uh-huh great yep. Work- workplace pod on twitter um and that i will have links to all of our all of our stuff yeah and as i've been saying when promoting the show in past cinescope episodes there are still weekly bonus episodes that we recorded for our patreon back in the day that are releasing basically to the end of 2020 so if you've listened to an american workplace and you miss content or you didn't realize that we were still releasing content, even though it's not newly recorded, it's new for most people who didn't sign up for the Patreon. So go check that out to have some bonus office discussion in your ears. <laughs> the best place to find me is also on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's it. Thanks once again, Katie. It was great talking to you. You too. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have fun and celebrate movies. Bye. Bye. Okay. Cool. That was that. That was that. Export as MP3.